Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of Philosophical Disquisitions. Have you ever wondered or worried about whether algorithmic platforms are affecting your freedom of thought, your capacity to generate, develop, and defend ideas for yourself? Are you becoming trapped inside a filter bubble and echo chamber, which you only share with like-minded people? Well, if those are thoughts that have ever occurred to you, you will find today's conversation hopefully pretty stimulating and interesting, because I'm going to be talking to Henrik Skaug Setra. And Henrik is a political scientist who works in the Faculty of Business, Languages and Social Science at Ostfeld University in Norway. He has a particular interest in political theory and philosophy, and he has worked extensively on Thomas Hobbes and social contract theory, environmental ethics and game theory. At the moment, his work is focusing mainly on technology, humanity, and society. And the paper that is the subject of our conversation today is a paper called The Tyranny of Perceived Opinion, which looks at the role that algorithmic curation and algorithmic platforms are playing in freedom of speech and freedom of thought and ultimately individual liberty. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. And as per usual, if you do like it, please consider rating, reviewing, and sharing this podcast on whatever platform you happen to prefer yourself. And hopefully through our collective efforts, we can do something to improve the speech environment online. Okay, without further ado, I'm going to hand over to the conversation that I had with Henrik. Okay, Henrik, so we're going to be talking about this paper you published on the tyranny of perceived opinion, which I guess is looking in particular at the impact that the algorithmic curation of information is having on speech and liberty in democratic societies today. Now, the paper that you've written is organized around five propositions that you develop into an argument about kind of a negative impact of these algorithmic tools on liberty. So I think it probably makes most sense if we work through those five propositions and build up to the main case that you want you want to make. So on my reading of it, the first three propositions have to do with the interconnection or relationship between human psychology and technology. And then the last two propositions have to do with the concept or idea of freedom. So just for listeners, that's the direction that we'll be following in this conversation. We're going from these psychological and technological propositions to claims about the nature of, of liberty. So let's start with the first proposition. So one of the claims that you make at the outset of this paper is that individuals have a propensity to seek information that corresponds to their pre-existing conceptions through psychological mechanisms such as selective exposure and confirmation bias. So let's try and explain some of those concepts. What is selective exposure, first of all? Yeah, first of all, selective exposure means that we have a tendency to seek out information that aligns with kind of the beliefs and the perceptions we already have, and we tend to avoid uh, information that conflicts with the uh, beliefs and perceptions we have. So that's kind of we selectively navigate the world, and this is both both subconsciously and consciously. So we we can actually consciously choose the information that we like, but we also tend to do this without noticing that we do it. For example, if I like Apple and iPhones, I have a tendency to kind of to seek out um, the good reviews from the Apple crowd, for example, and kind of avoid the pages and the reviews from Android fans, for example. So those kinds of, yeah, that that's the basic mechanism. Yeah. So 
One question here is like, how how robust is the evidence for the existence of this propensity towards selective exposure? I mean, anecdotally and intuitively, it sounds obvious enough to me that that's the kind of thing that I tend to do. Um, and even mm. even that example of seeking out the positive reviews of iPhones <laughs> and Apple's is is probably something that I I tend to do since I use those <laughs> devices. So, yeah. like, what is the psychological evidence in favor of this idea? It's, it's quite robust. It's uh, This is a theory from the 60s. So it's, it's an old theory that's kind of gained prominence uh, increasingly as we kind of see in the development of algorithms and this kind of effects that I'm talking about in this paper is being in use increasingly often. There are some problems with it, but even the critics of this tendency kind of say that the effects aren't that strong. It's not a kind of, a, uh, we're not getting lost in the world or we're not kind of fully discounting all contradictory evidence and we're not just fully seeking out information that uh, confirms with our beliefs. But the, even the critics of the theory says that this is an effect, but it might not be that strong kind of. As, so um, I think the main debate now is kind of regarding how strong it is. I think it's um, pretty unanimous that it exists to some extent and kind of um, answering kind of how strong it is is kind of a difficult question too. But I think most people would say that this is kind of a significant um, phenomena that most people experience in various degrees. It's not kind of all humans do this to the same degree, but I think that um, the evidence is quite clear that uh, it exists, and even the critics uh, acknowledge that it exists to some extent. But there are debates about the nuances and kind of what the subconscious is, what the conscious uh, aspect of it is, the reasons for it, as we might get back to, and these things. But I think the evidence that it's, it's a phenomenon that we should kind of recognize, I think that's fairly strong. Yeah, I mean, another related concept that you mention is the notion of confirmation bias, which is probably actually the term that I'm more familiar with. Is yeah. that the same idea or is it subtly different from the idea of selective exposure? Uh, it uh, takes in some of the same ideas as uh, selective exposure because it's related to both the seeking out of information and the interpretation of information when we're talking about confirmation bias. It relates to how we kind of search for things that confirm our what we believe. So if I go out and just buy a new camera, for example, I might go online just to find a positive review, as in those kinds of mechanisms. And um, it's more involved with kind of seeking out the positives and then interpreting it in, in, in a certain sense afterwards. So if we kind of read the review, we also kind of... Uh, read it in a way that kind of fits with the narrative that we want it to to have, uh, pretty much. So it's uh, it's more involved also in the interpretation. So it's uh, slightly different, and it's more focused on the seeking out confirmatory evidence, but it's uh, yeah overlapping for sure. Okay, I mean this example is sort of tied to what has happened the night before we recorded this interview. So you know one of the things that happened last night is the uh, U.S. presidential debate, yeah. the last debate between, between Trump and Biden. And yeah. I mean, one one phenomenon that you commonly get post-debate, and I, I imagine this is true in, in every country, but it always strikes me as being particularly true when you look at American media discussions of, of presidential debates, is that they have this thing called the spin room, where yeah. the operatives for the different political parties or candidates will spin the debate in a positive way. And then, mm. I mean... Obviously, there's a ulterior motive or purpose behind that, but in a sense that you could you could view that as a kind of arena in which you see the confirmation bias and selective exposure at work. Insofar as 
when you're looking back over what happened in that debate, you tend to highlight the evidence that supports your candidate and get, paints them in a good light. And I'm sure people watching it that already support that candidate will tend to do the same thing. They'll pick parts of the exchanges between the candidates that favor the narrative that they've already constructed in their heads. That's yeah, confirmation bias at work, right? Yeah. yeah. And the example you mentioned there is quite interesting. And if you take it from the social dilemma, you've been on a panel discussing it. And I know a lot of people uh, in the crowd that will probably listen to this have seen it and um, many don't like it. But still, you have this kind of uh, inside you kind of you know, in uh, the, controlling the algorithms. You have these guys kind of controlling the levers and kind of making sure that we're kind of nudged in the right direction, for example. You could call those guys in the spin room you were talking about as something kind of inside us, kind of subconsciously giving us um, skewed uh, perception of what's going on in the debate, for example. So it's kind of, uh, yeah, and all, almost... Yeah, it's not that good of an example, but it might work. But it, it is... No, kind of I mean, like, I think it's a good example. So actually, like, kind of what you're yeah. saying as well is that Inside our own heads, we have a version of the the spin yeah. room, and actually, people have said this before that we all have our kind of inner yeah, exactly. uh, press relations officer that spins yeah, exactly. the story in a positive way or yeah. spins the information in a positive way. Yeah, yeah. and uh, what they're saying is kind of uh, it's like kind of a lawyer building a case. It's not kind of building a case in order to highlight all the aspects equally, right? It's in order to win something. And they said that kind of we have a tendency to kind of um, gather information and um, focus on information that lets us build cases kind of, of uh, yeah, in a similar way to a lawyer kind of building a case to win. That's kind of what we do when we interpret information. So we kind of let something out and we kind of uh, tone something down if it's kind of, no, that's not that important for us, for example, but this aspect of the product is very important for us. So we kind of highlight those things and kind of yeah, neglect others. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, I have two kind of just final questions about this, this first proposition mm. about this psychological tendency. Um, I mean, one is like what, what explains it or what, why do we do this? Uh, mm. One of the things you discuss in your paper is this phenomenon of you know, cognitive dissonance reduction as maybe being part of the explanation for this. Maybe you could comment on that. Yeah, and that's also kind of the, the festinger back to the 60s theory and the cognitive dissonance. Uh, the reason, because it, um, the first two theories we've talked about, just as, as we have a tendency to do so. And if we kind of go into you know, why do we do so, uh, most people explain this by uh, the phenomena called cognitive dissonance, which means that if whenever we get information that conflicts with kind of our perceptions of how the world is, it's uncomfortable to us. There is this kind of slight pain or discomfort that we seek to avoid. So that's kind of the motivation or kind of a one, at least one motivation that lets us explain our tendency to do so. Because like people respond to incentives and also to internal incentives like rewards and kind of discomfort. So um, it's kind of natural in that sense if we actually experience discomfort when we see information that conflicts with what we actually believe, that we tend to avoid that information and seek comfort in confirmatory evidence. Yeah, I mean, the other question I had is something that I don't know if this is like necessarily within your kind of field, because uh, I appreciate that you're kind of drawing on these findings to support an argument about the implications of, of, of technology for you know, these grand philosophical ideas or concepts. But something just struck me mm. when you were commenting on this is, to what extent are these phenomena of confirmatory bias or confirmation bias and selective exposure dialed up by the complexity of the informational environment that we live in so like is it that the more kind of noise or the more information 
we're exposed to, the greater the need we have to make sense of our environment to fit it within our kind of preconceived conceptions and narratives. And so there's maybe there's a tendency that these uh, these kind of biases or natural inclinations get ramped up in the modern world versus you know the world of the late 1700s, early 1800s, where it was less informationally diverse and complex. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, uh, I think it might be. And I think um, it's yeah, it's a very interesting question, really, because I'd, I'd also say that kind of before we had all this information and before we had the opportunity to be online, for example, and meet our fellows in kind of the uh, closed communities, as we are going to discuss later, I think people were naturally also exposed to more divergent information in some sense, and that it might be something you get used to as well, because that's kind of the theory of learning. And in the theory of education, for example, they use this kind of cognitive dissonance as kind of, that is kind of a natural process you have to get through in order to learn as well. So I think there's uh, there's that, but there's also, of course, the when there's more information, you, there's more need to filter information. And, and no matter how we go about it, we filter information according to these inclinations. So yes, I think there's great danger at least that we will be reinforcing or ramping up these mechanisms once there and once we increase the amount of information we're subjected to. Yeah, and actually, I mean, that's a good point of a little about education. We often talk about the importance of kind of disorienting your students or making yeah. them uncomfortable as, yeah, as part exactly. of the learning experience, right? Yeah. I mean, the second yeah. proposition in your paper, then, well, you kind of hinted at parts of this already, but the, to call it out <laughs> or state it, it says that. Algorithms powered by big data play an increasingly large part in curating the overwhelming amount of information that is available in modern society. Such algorithms are not neutral and will always choose what information to present to users based on some predetermined logic. So let's try and unpack that a little bit. A number of questions that arise here. The obvious one is maybe just give some examples of how algorithms curate information. I know this will be obvious to some yeah. listeners, but just to get it on the table with some specific case studies in this. Yeah, sure. Let's just do the obvious one, for example, on Facebook. If kind of in your social network where you have kind of hundreds of friends, at least uh, most people, uh, there is kind of a plethora of potential posts and images and videos to display to us, right? So if Facebook kind of just dumped everything on our newsfeed as soon as it was posted for example we would lose so much information and that would kind of be in unfiltered in a sense but what it does of course is to select what it thinks we might be interested in and what we perhaps have said we are interested in and um, yeah according to some kind of predetermined logic so the algorithm kind of selects some posts that will be displayed in my newsfeed and it hides other things so that's kind of the curation I'm talking about, like kind of a museum curator trying to say that we want this painting on a wall and that painting on a wall, the others will leave for another time, for example. That's kind of the basic curation. Netflix, for example, when you watch the show, you get suggestions for further viewing. And it's not just a random kind of random all um, programs and shows and movies from Netflix. It's kind of selected um, based on some kind of logic that's uh, programmed in algorithms. So that's kind of two basic examples of how it curates the massive amounts of information out there in order for us to be able to make sense of it and in order for them to achieve some goals. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a, it's an important point here, which is that um, be, due to the volume of information, there has to mm. be some curation. Mm. And that means that by necessity, any algorithmic tool that 
presents or feeds information to us will be not neutral. I mean, and this was another question I was going to ask you, but I suppose I can kind of answer it myself or give an example <laughs> myself, which is that, you know, the early days of Twitter, mm. in some ways, Twitter had like the simplest curation algorithm, which is that it just showed you the most recent posts, right? Mm. Mm. But even that in itself is not neutral. Like they made a choice to say, to show you the most recent information. Mm-hmm. They could have showed you the oldest information since, or since the last time you logged in. You know, mm. in a reverse chronological order, as opposed to the most recent. Uh, nowadays, they do something more complex with the information. They try to feed you things that you might actually like, or and that kind of leads me mm. to the, the other question I wanted to ask you. So, which is, they're not these algorithmic curation tools are not neutral. What do we know at the moment about the kind of purposes or goals they are aiming to fulfill? What What are they actually trying to do for us or to us? Well, it kind of depends, though. Um, they're not neutral in the sense that if they're based on data, the data is kind of never neutral. So they can say that data is theory-laden, for example, that uh, it's based on a logic, kind of, and the logic of observation is informed by some form of theory, uh, human intervention, the coding, the structure, how do we kind of make sense of the data and how we gather the data and what data we gather and focus on is guided by a human kind of theory-driven ideology in some sense um, and data is also kind of a status quo conservative uh, way to approach the world kind of it emphasizes what has been and kind of finds patterns and kind of pre-longates history in a sense and we also had programs and companies right they have implicit and explicit values and preconceptions and that goes into the development of the algorithms and to, into the deployment of the algorithms so i kind of by necessity i think that uh, all these algorithms are cannot be considered neutral in a sense. We get a kind of data fetishism or data determinism where people try to portray big data and AI as kind of neutral and objective and kind of the next era of science where we have reached objectivity. That's kind of just what I, I try to state that it's not, it's not neutral. There's always some, some form of underlying values and preconceptions built in there from humans. Yeah, I mean, and it, it can't be neutral in a sense. Like no. There's, there's no way of... There's no way of separating if it's unless it's just pure noise, random noise. It can't be yeah. neutral, basically. True. Right. And yeah. so but the goals. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the goals. I mean, you mentioned the social dilemma that documentary earlier. I guess mm. you know, one of the main theses within that, or arguments within that, is that the entire system is just are structured around capturing your attention. Yeah. In so, order to and, market your information, it, it, can we make blanket statements like that? That that is the main goal behind these algorithmic curation tools, or is it more complex than that? Do you think? Uh, I think it's more complex because it's all, as I've already said, kind of it's both implicit and explicit values built into all these kind of different parts of the algorithm systems. These are built on, so it's kind of not just one main goal. But it's also too simplistic to say that Facebook is evil and kind of just wants to maximize attention because that would, in the short term probably work pretty well but in the long term that would just kind of be detrimental for their product as well so i think i think it might be fair to say that they are utility maximizing but that would uh, involve them having to kind of account for the fact that we in the long run uh, they'll face a backlash if they just try to maximize attention and kind of just drive this up to the max so i think they are and and they also stated this afterwards right that their goal is not simply to maximize um, screen time for example and they're taking measures to reduce it and that's kind of natural uh, also in line with the goal of kind of profit maximum and utility maximization if you want to in the long term because they'll need to have sustainable product a viable product and that kind of 
um, forces them not to just take the short term evil and simplistic <laughs> approach to this. And I think also there's a lot of in startups, for example, they don't have the same motivation as established actors like Facebook, because they can have the goal of kind of actually maximizing user experience and kind of actually maximizing my utility as an individual and respecting these kind of my goals and desires. But as soon as they become established and as soon as others see that they are very good at what they do and good at kind of providing those great user experiences, these kinds of motivations will inevitably change. But I think there is also ways kind of usually based on some kind of idea of providing something that people want and people think is good. But that's inevitably mixed up with kind of motives of self-interest on parts of those that produce and deploy these systems. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. And on a very simple level, the even if Facebook or, or any of these companies is utility maximizing in the sense of profit maximizing, mm. the actual tactics that they need to follow to maximize profit change because there's this kind of dynamic interrelationship between yeah. the user and the the platform or the interface, as you say. Mm. Uh, you know, there there are lots of examples of this, but uh, you know, one example that occurs to me is you know the way in which Facebook ads work, or mm. not not Facebook ads, sorry, YouTube ads. Yeah. That um, they play these ads at the start and they allow you to skip the ad after five seconds. Mm. And I noticed that a number of advertisers, this is more of a phenomenon a few years ago, used to put in like these pleas to you in the first five seconds, please don't press skip, don't skip the <laughs> yeah. ad. So that was them mm. responding dynamically to the the new kind of curation mm. of information, what they needed to do to um, maximize their own kind of goals mm. or utility. Yeah. Uh, hmm. If we combine though this first prop, the second proposition with the first proposition about selective exposure and confirmation bias, this tends to lead people to the idea that one of the things that we as users of algorithmic platforms do is we structure the informational environment in a way that appeals to our preconceived biases or values, and we create hmm. what's called a filter bubble. Maybe you could explain how that works and whether that is a prominent phenomenon with our use of these platforms. Mm, yeah. Um, a filter bubble is kind of, um, it might just be a static filter, kind of only allow new videos that satisfy conditions X, Y, Z. So that might be kind of, that's a filter too. And that might lead to a bubble in the sense that some information is left through and other information is not let through. And we are kind of in the bubble with the information that's let through and we're not aware of the information outside of it. So that's kind of the basic thing. It's also called an epistemic bubble, right? Because it filters some information out and other information is allowed through. So when algorithms kind of do what it does on Facebook, for example, um, we get into, uh, we start behaving on Facebook and the machine learning algorithms learn what we like, what we dislike, what we spend a lot of time on, for example, and that kind of leads it to adapt its filtering mechanisms. And we can also do it uh, consciously and we can click and we can say what we want and what we don't want, for example. So by doing that, we kind of let some information through and other information is left out. And when we combine that with uh, the human tendency to kind of let things through that we like and leave the things we don't like out, we tend to end up in what's called a bubble. And uh, the bubble is kind of a derogatory term for it because it means that we're kind of not seeing the whole picture, I think. Yeah, and I mean, this kind of, as you described it there, this makes the point about we we are, in a sense, through our own conscious choices, personalizing our informational environment. And then the way in which these platforms work can also uh, reinforce that 
element of yeah. personalization in creating the the filter bubble and this has the effect then of narrowing our view of the world around us we only mm. get a partial picture of, of that world right mm -hmm. yeah yeah now this kind of leads then into the third proposition that you outline in, in the paper which again i'll i'll read it out and we can discuss the elements of it and, and mm. just i should have emphasized this earlier in the interview but these are direct quotes from your paper at least the propositions are um, not the, mm. anything else i'm saying so you say in the digital world it is easy to create areas in which people can associate with like-minded people in contrast to our lives in physical space where fewer like-minded people are accessible and there are greater chances of encountering people with various beliefs such areas can become what are referred to as echo chambers so maybe you could start out here by distinguishing, if there is a distinction, between mm -hmm. the concept of an echo chamber and a filter bubble, because we often see those terms bandied about in debates about you know, yeah. uh, polarization online and so forth. But I think there might be an important distinction between them. At least I use it in a different way, and I know other people do as well. Uh, the filter bubble regards uh, communication and inf information pretty much uh, for me individually, whereas an echo chamber relates to how we associate with people. So that's relational and goes to good social connections. So the echo chamber uh, involves kind of the same kinds of mechanisms where we kind of like some people, we dislike some people. Some people say things we really don't like. So we tell Facebook, for example, to snooze them, to hide them, to kind of see less of their posts. Or on Twitter, we can kind of just mute them, block them, and get rid of them. And we can tell other kind of, we can like other kinds of posts. posts. And that kind of leads to a chamber uh, in which we are surrounded by people that uh, provide us with opinions and beliefs that are similar to ourselves. So uh, I think it's a different uh, concept in that it relates to how we connect with people and not with the amount of information we individually get. Related, sure, but not the same. So I know other people use it in that way as well, but I know also that some people kind of say that filter bubbles and echo chambers are kind of summarily dismissed as the same thing. But I, I don't think that's very, very useful. Yeah, I, th I think there is an important distinction because uh, yeah, in this third proposition, we're moving into the idea, as you say, of, of communities of association online. So it's not just an mm. individualized, personalized informational bubble that you're living in. It's it's a, no. a community that you're associating with that kind of shares the same opinions and views. Now, like, how mm. does this happen? I think you hinted at that in your answer to that question. Is, is it partly kind of choices that we make to block people to filter certain information and is that reinforced by the way in which the platforms work is there kind of an implicit element to this as well as an explicit element yeah yeah i think there's both uh, and i and this varies uh, greatly from person to person as well some people will kind of actually just get rid of all the people they don't like and they will simply follow the people that uh, have opinions similar to their own or are interests and uh, yeah, shared interests similar to their own and in that sense, you can build kind of a, an, a, a network consisting solely of the people that you like. Um, but most of us have kind of childhood friends, colleagues, other kinds of random, uh, more or less contacts in our networks. And uh, we don't really want to kind of um, unfriend all of these people just because they have uh, opinions that we don't like. But that's kind of the benefit of Facebook, for example. It says it's see less of these posts or kind of hide these people. So we can't kind of just have them in our network, but we won't see them. So in, in that sense, and kind of just analyzing networks on Facebook, for example, won't really reveal the echo chambers. You have to kind of analyze the interactions. 
that's kind of the, the explicit element. We can say that I don't like this and we can click on like on the things we do like and that will kind of teach the algorithm to provide us with uh, an echo chamber that kind of provides me with cheers and uh, applause every time I say something that I like and I provide the same back to these people. So that's kind of the echo chamber idea. But it's also implicit in the sense that yeah, and so then no, I kind of mixed those two ups now. So it's both what we do actively. We say it's news this person and like this person. And it's also that Facebook kind of sees what kind of people we actually interact with. And it tends to show them more often because I know a lot of childhood friends of mine that I never see on Facebook, but they post things all the time. But I just, I've never interacted with them. And Facebook kind of just leaves them out of my, out of my way because they it perceives that they're not of that much interest to me. So yeah, it's both implicit and explicit. Yeah, I mean, one of the more interesting kind of claims, I think it's key to part of the argument you make then about liberty, is that the kinds of communities and environments that we're creating online are internally more conformist mm. and more externally diverse. Now, that you, you use a different terminology i actually mm. i can't remember is it like internally hom- homogenous and external or ex- yeah externally and, uh, heterogeneous and yeah, yeah. Mm. um but it's the same point yeah, yeah so, so it, this has a connection then with the polarization of opinion and communities maybe you could talk about how that phenomenon arises yeah, because when we build this kind of uh, echo chambers, uh, and I'm not saying that I, neither the, the filter bubble nor the echo chambers is kind of absolute and that all people end up in this kind of ironclad echo chambers where all they are exposed to are things they agree with. That's not what's happening at all. It's a tendency and it's a kind of, it's um, yeah, it might be slight and it might be more significant, but still it's not kind of an absolute. So just to, to get that out of the way first, because that's been proven and it's been proven that it has some effects as well, these things. Uh, so um, yeah, and how this leads to intergroup um, polarization. Yeah. It means that uh, in, in, a, in a local community in the old days, for example, you were naturally kind of exposed to people with different opinions from your, your own. And if you kind of met in the town hall and had to kind of come to some sort of agreement on an issue, you were naturally exposed to ideas from kind of far away from your own position. And you kind of reached compromises in the sense that brought people somewhat closer to each other. So as long as people are different people are in kind of the same arena, they tend to congregate because we have a kind of a tendency to want to conform, we want to be recognized, we want acknowledgement, all these kinds of things brings people in uh, the same arena together in a sense. But what's happening now is that we all get these different kinds of arenas in which people get closer and closer. So we have online, we kind of um, form communities with those that disagree or agree with us and we get closer and closer to them. But these different communities tend to kind of drift further apart than we've seen previously. Previously, we might not have had that kind of strong phenomena of uh, these groups at all. But now at least we're seeing that it's possible to find your uh, people you agree with on kind of the far sides of the spectrum as well. So it's much easier for us to congregate with people that are that have extreme opinions, that have opinions that are closer to the ones that we originally have. So we don't really have to seek out that kind of compromise, that kind of golden mean or that kind of yeah, that compromise with the whole group anymore. We can just find a compromise in our um, pretty much already 
um, agreed upon group. So that's kind of what I'm talking about, that those groups, all the echo chambers will tend to get a lot closer and closer because we find the people that agree with us already. But in these different groups, um, or between these different groups, there will be a very, there's room for a lot of different opinions, and very different opinions that will lead to kind of, or is said or claimed to lead to a form of polarization in society because people have very different views about what, uh, what the world looks like and they got to get confirmation in this kind of different communities yeah i mean actually I mean, the way you've described it there kind of makes a point that i think is interesting and maybe negates a, a criticism is going to make but that if you imagine all of these echo chambers kind of aligned along a, an ideological spectrum yeah you probably will have a lot of these echo chambers bunched in let's say the middle that like the mainstream opinion tends to maybe cluster around mm. a fairly narrow range of values or perspectives on things Mm. But what's happening is that we're getting kind of extreme echo chambers as well, like on the far right or far left or whatever. And the people within those echo chambers are only associating with and reinforcing the values of that group. And they're not intermixing with the echo chambers somewhere in the, the center of the spectrum. Yeah. So you're not getting that canceling out effect. You might get more naturally in, a, in the real world or where you're forced to be exposed to more um diverse opinions um, no, yeah yeah so this kind of yeah and this is related to kind of a political theory phenomena as well kind of uh, previously had a kind of median water theorem a theorem that said that when you have two political parties they will kind of tend to meet in the middle and there will be very little that differentiates them because kind of they will be fighting for attention for from kind of both sides both of them but as soon as you get kind of a multi-party system they there will be niches kind of far from the center in a sense and I think it, that's interesting in a sense that um, politically, the kind of in the U.S., I haven't really analyzed how much farther apart they are politically, but at least in terms of communication and dialogue, it's kind of obvious now that it's possible to kind of be removed from the middle and still find a crowd. So and it's related to those kind of phenomena as well, I think. How does this conversation we're having here about the echo chambers and filter bubbles relate to debates about fake news and misinformation spread online? Are they separate phenomena? And is it more that like fake news is a particular problem, let's say, because it get, it tends to predominate in certain echo chambers? It's not so much that it, it maybe represents the mainstream view, because I know that there have been some papers written about the impact of fake news on the 2016 election in America, for example, there's a, mm. a science article a few years ago, mm. which suggested that it's actually a tiny percentage of people that actually really engaged with fake news. Something like one percent of users were exposed to eighty percent of fake news. Mm. But in a sense, that that doesn't matter because they are they are operating within a a bubble or a, an echo chamber that means that they don't kind of get the countervailing information to no. neutralize that so that's that's the issue that arises then yeah, right. yeah i think that they're clearly related but also separate as in an echo chamber you got you get a limited set of kind of tolerated opinions got it. but though the, the, it might be factual and accurate in a sense it's just not complete uh, but with fake news for example you get false information right so we get into kind of it's not just incomplete information in this group now it's actually wrong and that kind of further hinders the possibility of actually getting dialogue between these different kind of camps uh, around there and you kind of involve lies and deception those kinds of things as well so echo chamber is kind of more benevolent it's not benevolent but it's it's kind of 
somewhat different. But the problem is that in an echo chamber, it will be easier to spread fake news because people there don't, you don't have those kind of contrary opinions and you don't have this kind of wide array of people where some will actually say, no, this is actually not true. So when you kind of get these echo chambers, there are kind of homogenous, it will be much easier to spread information that are kind of close to their truths uh, without them actually objecting to this. So it's clearly related, I think. Um, fake news becomes more of a problem as soon as you get echo chambers, but it's not the same thing. You don't really need, uh, fake news isn't necessarily a part of the problem, but it might be. Yeah, and I think there's probably an important feedback cycle or reinforcement effect here as well insofar as that if this misinformation gets into a particular echo chamber, they build up a whole kind of narrative or theory of the world around that misinformation. Mm. And then that works in tandem with what we mentioned earlier on, the natural kind of psychological bias towards confirmation and selective exposure. So even if people within the echo chamber get exposed to contradictory information, they're going mm. to tend to interpret that in a way that fits the the narrative and values that they've already established so you can have this doubling down on the misinformation yeah. in a sense right yeah sure and then in this sense is i probably don't use it i think uh, janice and group think for example that's kind of the same mechanism on group level as i've discussed on the individual level and that's kind of very very relevant for this where you kind of had this kind of advocacy and we kind of have this uh, guards that kind of prevent uh, contradictory information from getting in and we have this kind of moral sense of justice in the group and all those kinds of phenomena are kind of very relatable to echo chambers and what you're talking about there before we move on to talk about liberty and freedom and, and how the the two halves of this debate about you know, algorithmic curation and echo chambers joins up with the concern about liberty and freedom mm. i just have one question to ask or maybe a slight skeptical question so one of the assumptions underlying this argument is that in the past or in natural environments or something or physical environments we were more likely mm. to be exposed to contradictory information i think that there might be some truth to that but also maybe we should be a little bit skeptical of that because you know part of me thinks that the country where i live now let's say ireland mm. in the past was probably far more conformist in its opinion there's far more diversity in the political debate and political community now you know historically we only had really two dominant parties the influence of the church on mm. state opinion was quite pervasive whereas now we have you know multi-party system coalition government being the norm and what seems to me like a more diverse media landscape mm. what do you say about that yeah, I think the, there's a fair amount to kind of, the, there's a lot of fair criticism of kind of the overhyped uh, focus on uh, filter bubbles and echo chambers, because people still get news from uh, mainstream media, for example, that's been shown throughout that a lot of people still get a lot of information from mainstream, relatively mainstream media, and they aren't personalized in the sense that Facebook is, for example. So as long as people get some news from those sources, they will be exposed to kind of different kinds of news than only the kind that they really just want. Uh, and it's also a sense of kind of degree here, because uh, after the 2016 election and up until now, there's still kind of a, a debate going on whether or not these are real phenomena and whether, whether or not people are exposed to more information now than before. And people have access to more information, sure. People might also be mm, exposed to more information, but there's still kind of the tendency to gathering communities that lets them kind of interpret this information in ways that kind of aren't really 
um, making sure that they make use of this information. So I think it's uh, it's a fair criticism, and it's important to note that these are not kind of um, it's not kind of ironclad that filter bubbles and echo chambers lead to these kinds of problems that we're seeing today with polar polarization. But it's the theoretically kind of very uh, obvious that it might lead to it. And there's a lot of evidence that it does in certain senses, in certain networks, in certain kind of uh, communities, for example, and for certain persons, that it has kind of strong effects. So it's uh, it's necessary definitely to have a kind of a nuanced perspective on this because it's not kind of that we're going from something good in the past and to something kind of that technology makes completely awful in the future because of filter bubbles and echo chambers. I'm just saying there is a tendency there that's important and all, uh, even the critics kind of acknowledge this. Uh, and there are some effects here that are significant, but they are kind of objecting to the strength of and the importance of it, uh, a lot of people. And that's kind of legitimate. And there's being done a lot of good work on this now. Yeah, I mean, uh, like I, I agree, that I, certainly in my own experience and the way in which I navigate the informational world now kind of re does to me support the notion that i tend to construct a kind of filter bubble that supports mm. a lot of my pre-existing values um but i at the same time with a degree of effort on my own part it is possible to expose myself i imagine to a much more diverse range of opinions than it was in the past so there's kind of yeah. two sides to this but this then Definitely. kind of leads into the fourth proposition as to you know what, what what's important about all of this there are a number of things that are important about it but one of the things that's important is the impact that it might be having on freedom and, and liberty in modern societies so your fourth proposition states that liberty requires in addition to freedom from physical interference an absence of social and psychological interference or domination as you call it and others mm. have called it that blocks the freedom of spirit and opinion uh, explain that to me so like what, what you know there are different concepts of freedom in political philosophy why do you place so much emphasis on this kind of social and psychological dimension and the opinions that we have as being a potential source of unfreedom in our lives. One of my kind of uh, entries into this is that I see a lot of people talking about, for example, surveillance capitalism, and that is to kind of killing our freedom. And there's a lot of people kind of throwing the freedom word or out there and saying this hurts our freedom and this is inimical to freedom without ever really defining what freedom is. So that's kind of my entry into this. I think we have to explain or understand what freedom is and what our notion of freedom is and then we can try to kind of analyze what effects are these things having. Uh, so the basic framework I'm using is kind of Berlin's, Isaiah Berlin's um, framework of negative and positive liberty in addition to Republican liberty. Because negative liberty, that's kind of what's always being criticized by a lot of people like Young and Cohen, for example. A lot of the writers on the technology are kind of criticizing the kind of what they call neoliberal narrative and the kind of very reductivist and individualist notion of freedom as just absence of interference because that's negative liberty. It consists in the absence of interference by other human beings. So that's kind of, a, and it's also kind of a very individualistic sort of freedom. So as long as nobody interferes with you kind of actively, or they even say physically, you're free. And they kind of tend to move towards what they call positive liberty, which revolves around kind of self-mastery and capabilities and notions of what is the authentic self and what is just kind of what you are today, uh, what you are today is the empirical self, but there is also some kind of authentic self that you might be helped towards, for example, and kind of freedom involves being enabled to reach these kinds of things. So that's a very different notion of freedom. 
And the final one I use is um, Petit. Uh, he discusses re Republican liberty. And he says that kind of freedom consists not just in not being interfered with actively, because that would mean kind of that a slave with a benevolent um, master, for example, might be considered free, because the slave, uh, although being enslaved, might be free to do whatever he wants. Uh, but that doesn't make sense, he says. We need to kind of grasp this in another sense. And that's why he says non-domination is important, because that means that we have to kind of uh, not be in a situation where somebody can arbitrarily interfere with our actions. They don't necessarily have to do so, but if they have the ability to do so, we are unfree. So that's kind of taking this kind of negative liberty and safeguarding it, in a sense. Very simplistic, of course, but that's kind of the three main reasons I'm talking about, or the three main forms of uh, liberty I'm talking about here. And I kind of object to this kind of, a lot of people say we need to move to positive liberty and then the, the post-liberal self and all these kinds of things because negative liberty is insufficient. I think that's just based on kind of a misunderstanding of what negative liberty and, for example, uh, Republican liberty can kind of afford from the liberal side. Yeah, I mean, I tend to agree. I think the, the concept of freedom... His, and the way in which it's been fleshed out in debates about political theory is more rich and complex than a lot of critics of kind of mm. liberalism or liberty-based political frameworks assume. So mm. I I would tend to agree with that. But then you're kind of linking this idea. So it, so in it's something like Pettit's idea of domination. You have the domination of the slave master is almost like a quasi-physical domination in the sense that it's... Um, so, so what differentiates freedom as non-domination from freedom as non-interference, at least the way Pettit describes it, is that freedom as non-domination requires the absence of interference across different possible worlds, in a sense. So you might be interfered with in this world or in your current life, but there's the potential or possibility of arbitrary interference with your liberty. But in your paper, you kind of talk about something else, which is more to do with the ideology or opinion that you have about how you should live your life or what you should ought to do. And you link this to the work of you know, Alexis de Tocqueville on the tyranny of the majority. Could you maybe explain that idea, that concept in your paper? Yeah. Uh, Tocqueville is kind of famous for kind of the tyranny of the majority, as is John Stuart Mill. They talk about tyranny of the majority, both both of them. And they, they said that democracy is problematic because in kind of... Um, unfeathered um, democracy, the majority, a slight majority might kind of get the means politically to kind of subject the small minority to whatever they want. So you kind of, they need, the, that's one kind of way of viewing tyranny of the majority that we need to safeguard the minority's rights. But what I'm interested in is, that he also says that kind of when he went to America, he says that uh, there was a lack of freedom of discussion. There was a lack of freedom of thought. It was limited, like people lacked kind of in independence of mind. And that's something different. And that's what I kind of call the tyranny of opinion. And both uh, Tocqueville and Mill talk about this concept because they're talking about kind of the moral power of the majority. As soon as people, uh, as the majority agrees about what is kind of, acceptable practices and beliefs and ways to live your life, um, that's, that can be more oppressive than actually having kind of them implement laws and regulation in a sense, because that's kind of the social tyranny that kind of goes deeper into a person's um, inner life. 
and kind of leaves no room for escape at all. So um, that's kind of the tyranny of opinion of the majority is what they're talking about. And Mill actually reviewed Tocqueville's book and it said that kind of this tyranny is kind of is of another another kind. Is that it's not of the body, it's over the mind. So it's not that kind of legal tyranny, it's not that kind of political tyranny, it's over the mind. So it's kind of this oppressive kind of popular opinion is kind of doing something to you, the popular opinion. And it's just that kind of political liberty and safety is not just safety from uh, poor laws, but it's also kind of an abuse of non-physical power. It's, it's consistent kind of a liberty of spirit and a liberty of opinion. And um, this liberty is threatened or preserved by society, not through politics and the, and the government, he says. So this is kind of more a social phenomenon that's um, that's important that they kind of highlight and say that it's not sufficient to have this kind of laws. We need to have kind of a context and culture and a political culture that, that allows people to kind of have a freedom of opinion and a freedom of mind as well, and an independence of mind. The, like the way in which you've outlined it there and the connection between Tocqueville and Mill kind of leads into the fifth proposition that you have in your paper, which is mm. that access and exposure to a broad array of information is a requirement for the development of individuality. So, mm. uh, so I think the idea here is that if, if we live in a very conformist environment, mm. we are getting exposed to maybe one conception of the good life, one conception of what we as humans should do and even if yeah, nobody is stamping down on our feet or locking us up in chains mm. living inside that conformist filter bubble bubble of opinion mm. is undermining our freedom and you link this in particular to some of mill's arguments about freedom of expression and the importance of encountering diverse opinions and mm. so one of the things that you know mill says in is a chapter two of On Liberty. And I don't, I don't know if you actually quote this phrase exactly, is that it's important for us to be exposed to a diversity of opinion, partly so that we get closer access to the truth. And that's one of the things that Mill is famous for, which is this mm. notion that freedom of speech helps to promote the truth. Mm. But that's not the only thing he says. He also says that it's important that we are exposed to a diversity of opinions so that our own opinions even if they are correct, are not held as mere kind of dead dogmas. Mm. And I think that's kind of the core of the idea that you're getting at with this fifth proposition, that you need to subject your own worldview to uh, scrutiny, to ver a varied opinion in order to kind of freely embrace it or to, to be a free individual. Maybe you could mm. uh, talk about that idea in a, in a little bit more. Yeah, and dead dogmas, kind of knowledge and... and um... Yeah, uh, I think it's related to, it's kind of, I wrote uh, three papers, right? It was a nudging and observation and this kind of on, you know, curation of information. And this is the most difficult to kind of show how this relates to liberty. And the way I do it is kind of saying that individuality is a prerequisite of kind of developing the capability of being able to uh, have freedom. And this is kind of uh, a notion that most theorists, also Berlin and Mill and all of the kind of classical liberal theorists also say that uh, liberty is not really about kind of what kind of capabilities you have or what kind of what you're able to do. But in order to speak meaningfully of liberty, we need some kind of minimum development of human faculties. And in order to achieve that, we need to be exposed to a certain set of ideas and we need to have access to uh, reliable, at least um, minimum, kind of minimally reliable information about the world around us. 
without that, we're not kind of able to navigate the world at all. We're not able to kind of uh, evaluate what, what is good, what is right, what is what is what we want. We're not able to form goals meaningfully, and we're, we're not able to be considered kind of a per, an, an organism that is capable of having freedom. So kind of that's kind of the basic idea, I think, that in order to be able to speak of liberty, we need kind of a minimum level of individuality. And that's kind of uh, and that's kind of common from both the liberals and the post-liberal or non-liberal side of the debate. Cohen, for example, talks about establishing a real and critical perspective of the world, for example, as necessary. And Berlin talks about minimum faculties and non-domination, for example, also kind of agrees with it that, that we need to live in a situation in which no other people are kind of controlling what information we have and don't have, for example, and kind of dominate us in the sense that they control what we're able to do, what we're able to develop into. But I think it doesn't really, um, there's not, I'm not really talking about what is kind of where do we reach kind of maximum or the best kind of freedom, but I, I think that we need to have a minimal level of kind of uh, individuality in order to meaningfully speak about freedom. So that's kind of my main approach to it. Right. And so this, this individuality is depend is kind of like a capacity or skill that you have to exercise and develop your like, it, it can't just be left to atrophy or assumed to exist without being tested and developed in some way, right? Yeah, no, freedom requires kind of a set of minimum cap uh, capacities, at least. And all of these thinkers are actually quite uh, non-politically correct in how they talk about people with, without mature faculties, for example, in the barbarians and the savages. And then they write quite harshly on the kind of condition these uh, individuals are in. And that is not the condition they're talking about, because that is the condition of civilized human beings, pretty much. So um, it's kind of, yeah, that's kind of what we need. But apart from that, I prefer the non-interference and perhaps non-domination as, uh, as well, because I don't really like to talk about freedom as how much of enabling conditions you have, but more of the absence of preventing conditions, in a sense. But in order to talk about um, freedom at all, you need to have this kind of minimum. So the minimum capability of that's required to actually be considered a human being capable of being free. Yeah, okay. Uh, so th then I suppose look, the, the question I want to go to now is really just how to tie this all together with the claims about the di kind of digital infrastructure, the algorithmic curation of information. I, I imagine it's obvious enough, but the idea is that it's suppressing or undermining our individuality these echo chambers and filter bubbles is that the basic idea yeah it's kind of kind of the overall um, argument here yeah yeah go, you go whole, yeah, to yeah. Br bring it all kind of together these these five yeah. propositions where, where do they lead us to in the yeah, end they lead us they lead us to a kind of problematic situation in which we live in a kind of tyranny of opinion in our echo chambers in our kind of intergroup um no, intra-group, uh, or in, 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 within our echo chambers, we live under a form of tyranny that is kind of non-physical and non-political, but it's kind of a tyranny of opinion that leads us to a pressure to conform, and that kind of harms our individual liberty in a sense, and it prevents us from getting kind of developing this kind of individuality and this critical and real and realistic perspective of the world around us. Simultaneously, we get increased polarization, which leads to political problems on kind of the, the level above. So we kind of see pressures on democracy, pressure on liberalism. We kind of get these kind of threats simultaneously. So both on the individual level, we live in kind of groups that makes it hard for us to kind of exist and yeah, as and both develop and kind of act as free human beings. 
and simultaneously our societies and liberal democracy in particular is kind of potentially threatened by this kind of polarization that is created simultaneously. So that is kind of the main main idea here. Yeah, one of the uh, more kind of interesting claims that you make, and it's, it's almost a little bit of a, like a throwaway in one of the, the paragraphs in the paper, is that uh, the modern kind of digital in- information infrastructure is creating a more pervasive system of control over opinion and perspective because in a sense there's nothing that's truly private anymore we don't have a, a, tr- a truly private life our social lives our habits are all partly expressed online when inside kind of bubbled communities where our opinions and perspectives are recorded forevermore and that can itself maybe enforce conformity through this this tyranny of perceived opinion Mm. Am I right in saying that that's the kind of argument you're making? And maybe you could flesh that out yeah. a bit more. Yeah, it's definitely right. And and there are some things that I'm happy to discuss here because not all the parts are equally kind of developed to the sense that I, I would have liked. And this is, yeah, one of them. Because when we live today, and, and that's kind of the argument I make in other papers, is that when you are continually watched, you are watched, you are never really free. Because, yeah, you can take it to Goffman, for example, the backstage, and you kind of, in public, you play a part. And in public, you have to kind of conform to certain norms and certain yeah, ways of doing things that, is, that are acceptable. But that might be okay if you have this private sphere in which to withdraw, in which you can be yourself. That is kind of one of the main values of privacy, I think, in order to kind of have this kind of place that we can step back into and actually be ourselves free and not be afraid of saying what we want to, for example, as I am on Twitter, for example, I'm dead scared of saying something wrong because people are so kind of set on kind of you know, what is acceptable acceptable, and what is not. And I, I just find it really difficult to kind of navigate that. And I find it really important to be able to live in a different sphere than what I experienced there, for example. But as soon as we are continuously monitored and continuously kind of living our lives in public, that sphere is increasingly small. And that's uh, also one of the aspects that a lot of the liberal theorists are talking about, that privacy is necessary in order to provide this kind of minimum area in which to develop. Uh, and that requires us to be to have some uh, aspects of our lives that are actually private and, and not available to anyone else in which we can be stupid and in which we can be controversial and in which we can do this kind of uh, take Mill's experiments of life for example because he says that's kind of what drives both development and society for example and utility for society being able to experiment being able to do different things without this fear of constantly being watched and judged and having this pressure to conform so I think that's a very important aspect that I kind of don't deal with in this article because I've dealt with it in a different article, but it's yeah, it's an important part of it. Yeah, I mean, I suppose like there's kind of two dimensions here. One is the within whatever community you are in online. So if you're in kind of academic philosophy Twitter, for hmm. example, that has a kind of conform conformity to it. And certainly I assume that there is a a dominant ideology within that that I I would make me reluctant to express certain ideas, perhaps, and I mm. I, I fairly studiously avoid sharing opinions other than kind of things that I've written in articles on online. Mm. Um, not because I think my own private opinions are particularly controversial, and I'd I'd be happy to talk about them with people offline. But it's just um, I wouldn't 
I wouldn't take the risk of sharing them online because no. they can be picked up by other communities well as well as and read out of context. So that's mm. that's one issue um, that the if we if we don't kind of have these separate bubbles in which to live our lives, we can't really develop our capacity for individuality. And I know this isn't maybe directly the point you're trying to make there, but one way in which I f- I see this maybe particularly profoundly or acutely nowadays, and it's something that's even changed in the past twenty years is the ability to kind of escape your past in any way, mm. right? That um, well, one of the things that was significant for me maturing was going from kind of second level education to university and third level education, not just mm. because of the educational experience, but the ability to kind of leave behind the peer groups that I would have had in school and mm. move into a different world and develop myself in different ways without the encumbrances or the burden of my past and how people expected me to behave and perceived me me to mm. be. And I worry a lot that that's something that people lose nowadays because so much of, as, as a teenager nowadays, so much of your life is lived online and expressed online. I know that people have private accounts on Facebook or Instagram and all these platforms, but I think there's a danger that you don't have the capacity to escape that past anymore. Yeah, definitely. And, and it's related to the kind of the need to experiment, the need to kind of, yeah, and test different ideas and kind of, uh, yeah, navigate and find out kind of what you want to be and what, uh, yeah, what's real and what's uh, what you like. And yeah. That's kind of, uh, I, I don't know who, uh, I don't remember who wrote that kind of the right to be forgotten, for example, but that's kind of related to this and it's very important and very interesting. Was it, yeah, I think it was one of those people who wrote this um, big data book years ago, wasn't it? I, I can't yeah, remember that. Yeah, it might be, no. Uh, I'll, I'll need to look it up. Or else it was like Daniel Solov or something like that. I, I can't recall exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just maybe one kind of last bit of the paper that you, after you've kind of developed the conclusion, you talk mm-hmm. about these different effects that can have an impact on liberty in the big data world. So you talk about the expectancy effect, the Proteus effect, and the the Thomas theorem. Mm. These are interesting concepts and ideas. And maybe we could just conclude by kind of th- talking about how they operate in this environment of, of pr- the tyranny of perceived opinion yeah sure uh, i'd love to because that's that part is severely underdeveloped so I, i'm happy to be able to discuss it and that's why i'm kind of still working on this uh, topic as well because i i think there's something interesting there that's that should be developed further first of all i might just say that the the term perceived opinion in itself we haven't really touched upon that but the perceived opinion is kind of uh used uh because the opinions we perceive through social media, for example, and the other different arenas in which the information is curated, it's not kind of, it's not a real opinion. It's not real people. It's not actual or objective information. It's perceived information and perceived and kind of immediated uh, version of the world. And that's kind of um, what I'm also kind of building there in the perceived opinion part is. And this is something that is subject to abuse as well. It's possible to kind of form that perceived opinion in order to something that's not realistic and in order to kind of shape people and their behaviors quite drastically. So um, I just wanted to have that there. And that relates more to the way that expectancies, for example, can be created by the way we use algorithms to curate information. Um, those three things you talked about, those are all um, 
theories that are able to create what we might call uh, self-fulfilling prophecies of different kinds. Um, Jerome Lanier, for example, asks, is an algorithm successful because it produces good output or because the users adapt to the output that's produced? That's kind of often a problem when algorithms are tested in real life, right? So what I'm kind of developing here or pursuing here is the, the potential that algorithms and personality profiles and those kinds of things and the information we get based on personality profiles, it might, it's not actual, it's something perceived and hypothetical. And, what I'm, and the argument I'm making is that these predictions will actually shape our behavior and shape our understanding of ourselves and shape the way we see ourselves and see the world. So there is kind of a great instrumental power in being able to predict what somebody will do if we manage to uh, convince the people that these predictions are objective and good. And the first is the expectancy effect. If I expect something of you, this will in fact influence you. That's kind of the basic thing. And the blind test, for example, the experiments where T. Troop was given kind of this fictitious uh, a scorecard of uh, his pupil's uh, ability test, for example. Uh, total nonsense, but he believed it was true. And then they kind of followed this through and saw that the teacher's expectancy for these kids, based on kind of this report, had effects on how they actually performed. So that's kind of one of the one thing that expectancies of for someone might uh, kind of lead them to live up to or live down to these kind of expectancies. And when algorithms kind of perceive suggestions and selections, for example, that they are offered on sites such as Amazon and Netflix, for example, uh, as based on relatively objective criteria, such as their usage history, um, for example, they might lead, uh, read this or perceive this as a kind of expectation of what they're supposed to do or what they should do or what they should be, what they should like. And that will actually not just inform them and give them a new opinion it will shape how they view themselves because they will kind of potentially start thinking that oh i am oh i might be a person that likes this and then they might actually become a person that likes this so that's kind of the mechanism i'm developing here and it's related to norm nudging as well kind of this um, the idea that we can kind of tell people what most people do or what people like you do that has a clear effect on how people behave so the expectancy effect, that's kind of related to how what we present to someone as an expectancy or a prediction of what they will do will kind of potentially lead to a self-fulfilling prophecy. And it might lead to kind of all kinds of distortions of how we evaluate the effectancy of algorithms. The Proteus effect, that's the next, that's the tendency to change behavior according to how you are presented. Um, it's mostly used in order to kind of see how an avatar in game, for example, will uh, affect the way people behave. If they are tall and kind of uh, a particular appearance, they will be more confident in a negotiation game, for example, than when they are portrayed in a different way. When they have this kind of avatar in a bank, for example, that's an old person, a fragile person, they might be more prone to save rather than if they have this kind of avatar in their bank application that's younger and more healthy. That might induce more risk um, behavior, for example. So that's also a possibility for us. And I say that this is potentially also related to how we are portrayed on Facebook or on Instagram or on all these other sites, because there is a logic there that displays certain aspects of us to others. 
certain kinds of posts will be promoted, certain kinds of uh, facts and characteristics will be promoted. And I'm just saying that these things will have effects on how people perceive themselves and how they will act. And that's really the last thing, which is Thomas' theorem, theorem uh, which uh, briefly um, involves kind of the self-fulfilling prophecies. And that's kind of from the other side than the expectancy effect. Because if people define a situation as real and perceive a situation to be real, they might be prone to create the situation. Um, and that's related to... Um, yeah, different kinds of things. A bank run, for example. If you can, if you kind of manage to, to get people to believe that a bank is in danger of uh, being illiquid, uh, that might itself lead to the bank becoming illiquid because people will go and um, draw, withdraw their money. And Merton, for example, a long time ago, points to ethnic conflicts and between Afro-Americans and whites, for example, where he said that the whites failed to see that he and his kind of produced the facts in uh, quotes, which he observes the facts that prolong the conflict. So that's kind of our beliefs about the world might actually uh, shape the world. And when people are able to shape our beliefs of the world, that gives them potential power to change the world. So these are three different ways of kind of, kind of getting into how using algorithmic curation of information might leave, might give people instrumental power in order to shape both personalities and behavior. So that's kind of uh, very short, and I'm, I'm sure it's not that easy to follow um, way to kind of describe these three things I have at the, uh, at the end there. Yeah, and I see them as being kind of, so. yeah, they, they all, as you say, lend support to this idea that there's kind of a self-reinforcement cycle that takes place here. That you mm. you create the echo chamber, you create the um, bubble in which people live under the tyranny of perceived opinion, and combining it with these effects, it's, you get a kind of a potential for a self reinforcing cycle, mm. uh, right? Um, mm. It's probably a cliche and a little bit unfair to end a discussion like this by asking somebody what you've identified a problem. What should be done about the problem? Um, Do you have any yeah. thoughts on what should be done about this? Um, not really that I'm probably capable of <laughs> portraying now in a very short while. But I think one key is privacy, I think. And I'm kind of a strong proponent now in uh, some of my recent papers of kind of very strong regulation and kind of just stepping back and saying that we as societies have to first ask ourselves kind of what values do we have? What kind of societies do we have? And if that requires us to limit the amount of data that a company can collect or use and uh, how it can use it or how it can operate trans multinationally, for example. And I think politically, we have to recognize that politics is powerful. We have the, the opportunity to kind of severely limit how these companies are able to operate if we perceive them to be kind of uh, counterproductive in sense of reaching the goals we have. So my sense is that uh, I don't think kind of the AI ethics and having this kind of uh, all these kind of AI uh, thought leaders and opinion leaders going around in private companies and trying to make them ethical on their own. I don't think that's the kind of uh, I don't think that's an approach that will work by itself, at least. So I'm kind of favoring a kind of much stronger regulation now. And I think privacy is one of the key uh, aspects in order to avoid a lot of the problems that are discussed in various papers, including kind of the problems of personalization and and also a lot of the mechanisms of social media. So I think privacy and regulating that 
heavily is kind of one of the keys. And I think we have to do it kind of collectively and treat privacy as a, as a common good and not as an individual affair that people can each on their own kind of decide what they want, but that we have to kind of say that when some people are lax with their privacy, this will kind of harm other people because this will give the companies the power they need and this will give the companies information about the people that don't want their privacy kind of compromised as well by network effects. So I think um, yeah, for me, I'm just now working on this kind of regulatory aspects and I'm kind of now at least inclined to kind of pursuing the stronger regulation uh, in a sense that we can't just view government as kind of an obstacle here. Even if I have a liberal position in most of my things, I think uh, even liberals have kind of a clear ma mandate for government. Whenever there's common goods and whenever liberty is threatened, there is a clear purpose for government and, um, and force and coercion is uh, well placed at times. But I know that's very non-concrete. And um, no, no, I yeah. think that's that's fine. I mean, yeah, there's probably no like silver bullet exactly here, but I think you're right in diagnosing invasions of privacy and data collection as being maybe as close to the kind of core of the problem as anything else, because that that's essentially what lets this entire mm. informational ecology develop. Because, because mm. if we didn't collect that information and utilize it to, you know, shape preferences on these platforms or figure out how to push information towards people mm. none of this could really get off the ground in the form that con concerns us nowadays no. so i think you're right and for people who are interested you know i just had this interview with carissa valise in her book privacy mm, is power which touches upon a lot of these themes and this notion of privacy as a collective good or common good that we need to work together to protect Hmm. Yeah. So I think I think that's probably a good place to leave it. And um, you obviously write lots of interesting papers, by the way, for people who are interested in this topic and other things. You've written a lot of good papers in the past year or so. I've, you know, kind of flurry of papers have come out from you on these topics, and they're all available freely online, as far as I can gather. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'll provide a link to that as well. <laughs> oh, th yeah. Thank. Thank you. Um, all right. So thank, thanks for joining me for this conversation, Henrik. Thank you very much for having me. I'm honored to be here. I very much appreciate the work you do and look forward to reading forthcoming work from you as well. Yeah, it's always, always good to end on flattery. Thank you very much. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you.